MG is back and it's electric. The MG ZS EV. From just €28,995, the truly affordable, family-friendly electric range. Go to mg.ie and recharge your soul. Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. In just under a month's time, on January 20th, 78-year-old Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th President of the United States, bringing the curtain down on the four turbulent years of Donald Trump's presidency. One of the key areas in which Biden promises a change of approach is that of foreign policy. The incoming president says he wants to restore the United States to its former place at the heart of and as a leader of the international world order. But what are the challenges he faces as he seeks to repair damaged relations with America's traditional allies and set the US on a new course? On the line now to discuss that with us is Thomas Wright, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Tom, good to have you back on Worldview. Chris, it's great to be with you. Thanks. I wish I could be there in person, but this is the second best thing. So thank you. Indeed. Indeed. Next time, hopefully. Tom, I didn't give you a full bio there in introducing you, but I I could have mentioned you're a contributing writer at The Atlantic. And indeed, you have a new article just published there. And I think it's as good a place to start as any. Um, You say in that article that competition with China will be the most difficult foreign policy issue to be faced by Joe Biden as president. And I suppose we could say so far so uncontroversial. But you go on to argue that his appointment of John Kerry as a special presidential envoy on climate change might create a problem for him here. Why do you think that? Yeah, um, so this is really part, Chris, of a, a, I guess, a ongoing sort of series I've been doing on just trying to look at the Biden team and how they're sort of shaping up and the different sort of views uh, inside the team um, and what that means for the future of their foreign policy. And I think, you know, starting out, it's just important to stipulate that the the band of debate, um, the spectrum of debate within the Biden camp is, you know, rel- is much narrower and much more mainstream, obviously, than in the Trump camp, right? So whatever you get with the Biden team is exponentially sort of more normal and more professional in many ways than, you know, than the outgoing team. But having said that, you know, there are interesting variations. And one of those is on China. You have sort of two different groups. Um, One group uh, would probably want to go back a little bit to the Obama approach, um, uh, pre sort of geopolitical, you know, where there was competition with China, but the US wasn't sort of viewing that as a major prism um, for its foreign policy um, and had a strong sort of bilateral relationship with Beijing. And then there's a second group that uh, thinks uh, that there is sort of a systemic uh, competition with China, a a competition of governance systems, um, and that the U.S. uh, needs to have sort of a a liberal and progressive version of competition. So not just take what Trump had, but really look at uh, the broad range of issues on economic and trade issues, on human rights um, and values, um, on technology in particular, uh, and to work with Europe on that. And so in the middle of that, you have John Kerry, who was appointed to quite an unusual position. He's a presidential special envoy for climate change, but he also has a full seat at the cabinet and on the National Security Council. And there's some reason to think that he views his role very expansively, right? And so he sees climate as sort of linked to every other issue um, and that China is sort of central to that and that he could end up being the point person in China policy. Um, and that has some other people in the Biden 
um, camp worried. And so the people, the piece is really um, trying to unpack that and say, you know, what does Biden need to do uh, to ensure that John Kerry can succeed? And the answer, I think, um, is that it's important that his efforts are placed as part of a broader um, sort of strategy um, run by the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, um, not fully defined by climate, but where climate's a really important role, um, and then to work very closely with Europe um, and other democracies on that. And you described John Kerry in the piece as a man of supreme self-confidence and who, when he was Secretary of State, he didn't always necessarily follow the White House line or take directions from the White House. Are you kind of suggesting he's not really a team player? Well, um, you know, John Kerry became within a hair's breadth of being elected president. Um, he's a very, uh, you know, he had a, a very good sort of track record as Secretary of State, Chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, he's a very senior um, figure, and I think he is uh, very sort of self-confident and he is sort of very focused and was on the Middle East peace process um, during his term as Secretary of State. The problem is, um, is that he can often sort of go it alone as well, you know, and sort of set the pace running and, and not, you know, maybe uh, be as cognizant, uh, let's say, as the as the other priorities within the administration. So I'll give you an example you know, during um, the Obama administration, you know, President Obama's signature policy uh, accomplishment in the first term was the pivot to Asia. And uh, John Kerry uh, really pivoted back to the Middle East uh, and back to Europe uh, and wasn't as sort of focused on um, sort of the China challenge maybe as some others were. And so that's sort of just one example, I think. Um, and it's important because of how politically contested China is um, domestically and also internationally, I think it's incredibly important that they have a unified approach um, to China from the beginning um, in terms of the message sent to allies, to Beijing, and also to Capitol Hill. And you think the kind of powerful role he's been given here, it could have unintended consequences then uh, in other areas of US-China relations? Yeah, well, possibly. I mean, I hope not. Um, and, and the piece is really trying to say that, you know, there's a, a right way to do this and a wrong way um, to do this. Um, but one of the concerns would be, um, you know, if you have a climate-centric China policy where you sort of say to Beijing, you know, the most important thing in the relationship is climate and we need to cooperate on that um, because you're producing all this, you know, coal fire, you know, energy and, and uh, we need you to stop that um, for our interests. And that what that says to Beijing um, is, boy, this is a pretty good source of leverage, right? So we can say, well, we'd love to do that, but we can't really do that if all these other things are happening. And so you need to make concessions, you know, on Xinjiang and Hong Kong and and, and Taiwan and, and all of these other sort of issues before we can get to climate. So, um, and then it gets bogged down and then you don't actually get the cooperation on climate change. So the alternative approach, um, which I think most people in the, in the, Biden team favor is to say climate is so important that we have to sort of compartmentalize it and separate it out so that cooperation continues regardless of the rest of the relationship. So even if the US and China are competing and having crises and problems, climate cooperation continues in much the same way that the Soviet Union and the US cooperated on the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and non-proliferation you know, throughout the Cold War, because they both had an interest in preventing the spread of nuclear weapons 
even though they sort of competed with each other pretty ferociously. You outlined there the, the two strands of um, thinking, if you like, within the incoming administration about how to approach China. Is China unusual in, in the sense that um, there is a, a certain degree of consensus in Washington among both Republicans and Democrats that the US needs to be tough with China, whatever tough might mean? Yeah, there's definitely been a shift, but I think it's less about sort of being tough or not being tough. And it's more sort of a realization that in multiple areas, um, you know, that uh, that the Chinese sort of model of governance, right, has some negative externalities, you know, that maybe, you know, the U.S. should be concerned about. And the same is true for Europe um, as well. So since 2015, um, when Xi Jinping introduced the sort of made in China um, strategy, it's been pretty clear that there's really not going to be major structural economic reform in China. Um, and, you know, they're subsidizing a lot of their major companies on the technology side and uh, elsewhere. And so they have an unfair competitive advantage, right? And we have um, for many years sort of assumed that the market will take care of itself um, and now find that there's no Western alternative to Huawei on 5G technology, right? So one of the things um, that the Biden team, I think some of the Biden team would like to do and many in Europe would like to do is to say, we need to talk about industrial policy again, right? How can the US and Europe work more closely together to help industry, you know, compete with China on these high-end technologies? Um, we also see in international institutions, you know, Biden's very uh, much a multilateralist, um, but in those international institutions, there's been an erosion of liberal norms and liberal democratic norms, uh, often because of a sort of authoritarian influence, right? China, Russia, and others pushing in a, an alternative set of norms. And so the argument here would be that the US and Europe need to work much more closely to go together, coordinating their efforts inside these institutions, engaging them and shaping them from, from the inside, not like Trump, who, you know, left the World Health Organization um, and, and sort of abandoned it. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, sometimes this sort of tough or not tough thing, um, I think, can just sound, you know, a little uh, dichotomous in terms of sort of hawk-dove uh, frames. Um, but actually, it, it's more sort of a wide range of, of, of activities, I think, that are largely focused on trying to strengthen democracies, strengthen the transatlantic community um, and alliances with Asian democracies um, to ensure that we're, uh, you know, competitive with China, that we have sort of a strong economy and that there is a restoration of sort of the manufacturing, you know, base in, 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 in democratic countries and, and, you know, and that we do uh, have a set of liberal norms internationally um, that sort of protect human rights and democracy. And is that the key difference we'll see, Tom, between the Trump administration and Biden, not just in China, but in general, that Biden will seek to work with allies rather than go it alone? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think that's very much true. I mean, if you look just today, for instance, um, as we're recording this, you know, the EU is negotiating um, an investment treaty with China. And um, I think there are concerns here in Washington about that. Um, last night, the incoming national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, tweeted, um, you know, in reference to this and that he hoped for early consultations with Europe on this. Um, you know, Trump, I think, would have would have, you know, threatened tariffs or threatened sanctions or something. The Biden people are saying, look, this is something, you know, that should be discussed. The U.S. has a perspective 
um, you know, it's important to work together um, on China-related issues. Um, so I think that was a pretty good um, sort of example of the difference uh, in tone. So there will still be differences. Obviously, um, there will still be negotiations between the U.S. and Europe. But I think Biden's uh, uh, officials will, and the president himself, president-elect himself, will very much want to engage um, with allies. And you have to remember that, you know, this team is probably the most Atlanticist, most sort of European-oriented team in in many decades. Uh, you know, uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State-designate, you know, grew up in France in, in part, I think, and speaks French and, you know, has has been long involved as an Atlanticist um, you know, Biden himself, obviously, for over 40 years, has been working on U.S. foreign policy and supportive of alliances. So I, I think there will be, um, you know, the, 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 it won't all be, uh, you know, it won't all be easy. Um, but I think there there is a very strong commitment there uh, to working with others. Now, to return just for a moment, Tom, to the question of climate change, again, we see big differences here between Trump, who was a climate change skeptic, really, and and Biden, who has promised to return the U.S. to the Paris Climate Accord, which, of course, Trump withdrew from. How deep-rooted is Biden's commitment to progressive climate change policy? I mean, does he have a track record in this area? Or is this an area where he sees an opportunity to reach out to the left wing of his party? No, I think there's unified, there's a unified view in the Biden team and coming from, the, from Biden himself that climate change is an existential challenge that uh, the U.S. has basically ignored, um, not just for the last four years, but you know, for considerable parts of the last uh, of the last twenty, you know, since since the election of of, of two thousand, um, and that it's sort of fluctuated with partisan uh, control of the of of the White House, and that the situation is more urgent than ever, right? And so I think that's reflected in his appointment of John Kerry and uh, many other sort of appointments in the climate space in his own commitment to these issues. The question really is how best to do that, right? Like how the conversation we need to be having, which I think we will have next year, is how best to address climate change. Um, and how can you put in place a series of measures to reduce carbon emissions that is enduring in America, like that is not just reversed the next time a Republican is elected president um, or a Republican Congress decides to you know, change sort of legislation. Um, so that's sort of the key um, challenge. Um, but I think the under this, uh, under Biden, I think there will not be sort of a discussion about whether or not climate change needs to be addressed. It will really be how to do so. How much can he do if, if as looks likely, um, he's working with a, a Senate which will have a Republican majority? That's not established yet until the, the Georgia elections take place. But um how much power does the president have to act uh, on on his own in this area? Well, this is a huge challenge generally um, um, for a number of reasons. I mean, there, every president has had a majority in the Senate um, in their at the beginning of their first term, you know, going back to the 1980s, and then it was a different type of Senate, right? So um, that was more bipartisan, um, and so you 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 have a real problem with appointments. So if Republicans control the Senate after these Georgia elections, um, it would be they will control the nomination process for all senior positions outside of the White House. So that will be extremely uh, difficult um, to navigate. Um, on foreign policy, obviously the president has a lot of has a lot of autonomy, right? And they can do a lot of things um, on their own. Um, but 
you still need legislation in some areas, and one of those is on climate. So it will be a big problem, I think. And even if uh, Democrats manage to win the Senate, um, then you still have senators like Joe Manchin of West Virginia and others who, you know, who are pretty conservative, even though they're Democrats on climate change. So I think it's going to be hard. Um, I think the the question they're going to have to grapple with is how to proceed given those constraints, right? And one of the um, one of the ways to do it uh, is to work very closely at the state and city level um, to work through state legislators and mayors to lock in, um, you know, carbon emission reductions um, there in a way that can't just be stymied um, by, you know, by Republicans in Washington. So we may see more sort of devolved um, action on this, um, uh, largely out of political necessity. Biden himself, of course, does have a very strong rec- track record in terms of um, working across the aisle. Um, but maybe those were different times when he was in the Senate himself and even when he was vice president. Is it a, a pipe dream to expect that he might be able to restore those kind of working relationships in the current atmosphere in Washington? Well, it's going to be hard, but I, I think it is achievable. I mean, it will be hard because you have an outgoing president who's arguing against all evidence um, that the election itself uh, was illegitimate and that he is the legitimate president, right? And he will probably impose a litmus test on Republicans um, to to uh, to follow suit. And so if Republicans are cooperating with um, the Biden administration, you may see him encourage primaries against um, individual senators and members of Congress. So all of that, I think, creates a very uh, extremely partisan climate and a climate of fear, really, an atmosphere of fear um, that would be hard to overcome. Having said that, um, you know, there are a number of issues where I think Republicans and Mitch McConnell understand that if they are seen as the as, you know, the obstacle to action, they will pay a price in the midterm elections in 2022. So, you know, COVID relief, as we've just seen, um, infrastructure bill to, to, to basically try to stimulate the economy um, next year, a whole array of legislation on, cli- on China-related issues, um, particularly on technology and economic competitiveness. Um, those are all areas, I think, where you could see um, some uh, cooperation. But I think it will be fairly low-key and practical and, and maybe under the radar a little bit. Um, so you may see sort of instead of major pieces of legislation, you may see um, sort of more targets of opportunity and, and trying to build some um, confidence there. But the Trump factor means it will be it will be pretty difficult. To return to the, the foreign policy area, another issue he's likely to, to tackle from the outset is, is relations with Iran. And listeners will know that this was another target of the Trump wrecking ball when he sought to undo one of the, the key achievements of the Obama presidency, and that was the Iran nuclear deal. Maybe, Tom, because you'll explain it better than I will, could just maybe remind listeners first what that deal involved and, and why it was considered to be of such significance. Yeah, um, so the the um, Iran nuclear deal, otherwise known as the um, JCPOA, um, was negotiated and, and agreed in 2015 by the Obama administration and, and basically uh, froze uh, the Iranian nuclear program for well, there's a variety of different um, sunset clauses, but basically for for 10 years with lots of different restrictions uh, in place in exchange for an easing um, of, of sanctions. Um, Trump pulled out of that deal 
and has basically waged a maximum pressure campaign uh, to increase the amount of pain um, on Iran in the hopes that it would buckle. Um, but instead of buckling and ceasing its undoubtedly you know, a- aggressive actions in the region, it's basically doubled down and violated uh, the agreement itself, um, although not fully left it, um, and of course has been has been um, pretty uh, sort of assertive in, in the Middle East. And so the challenge that Biden has is how to respond to this. His official position is that he will return to compliance with the deal if Iran returns to the compliance if the deal with the deal and if Iran shows a willingness to engage in negotiations on a successor deal, because of course we're much closer now to the expiration date of, of the original deal um, than we were uh, four years ago. Um, so that's sort of where we are. The debate that's sort of occurring in Washington is whether or not Biden should try to do that um, you know, and go compliance for compliance, given everything that's happened you know, given all of the actions of Trump and Iran's response and whether that's even practical, and especially that the region is still basically opposed to it and that there's, you know, uh, almost a Republican uh, Senate um, that, you know, would have something to say as well. Or should he try to use some of what Trump did as leverage to negotiate a different deal? And so there's um, quite a lot of sort of discussion and debate on that, Um uh, and I think that will sort of play out in the first um, couple of months. But Iran will be uh, will be an extremely difficult problem, and and it won't just be difficult uh, it, on its own terms. It's also this larger question about whether or not the U.S. is just going to get dragged back into the Middle East, you know. And uh, many people here want to focus more on the Indo-Pacific and and on alliances in Asia and also to work with Europe and a set of global issues. Um, and the idea of getting sort of dragged back into the vortex of, you know, a, you know, a, a negotiation that if it fails could lead to a strike in Iran and that that's where all the energy is. I think that's sort of concerning um, as well. And how do you, how do you get a sustainable deal, you know, if you don't have the buy-in of the, of, of, you know, of the region as problematic as, the Saudis or others, you know, uh, may be, um, you know, they they do have some influence over 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 um, this issue. And um, the other thing, Chris, is that, you know, obviously there's unfinished business with the Saudis as well. I think Biden has been very critical of Saudi Arabia. There's still a lot of anger about the murder of Kamal Khashoggi, um, and so, um, you know, I think uh, he will um, probably take a tough line. Uh, with um, some of the Gulf Arab um, allies uh, from an early uh, stage on on a number of issues, including uh, the war in Yemen. And of course, Israel is also part of this uh, picture and and um, very much anti the, the, the Iran deal, if you like. Um, Trump promised the deal of the century when it came to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace process. That, that clearly didn't happen. And his administration made no meaningful attempt to involve the Palestinians in, in discussions about their own future. Um, this is a an area in which many U.S. presidents have tried and and failed um, to deliver a, a lasting uh, outcome. What do you think Biden will do differently? I think there's sort of more of a sadness um, in in amongst democratic circles on on the Israel-Palestinian, you know, uh, and uh, peace issue um, than anything else. Um, obviously, John Kerry tried to do this and it didn't work, and I think the situation has just gotten worse. 
um, since then. I don't think they believe that the time is right to launch a new sort of process, right? I think they will do so um, whenever they think they have the opportunity, but there's no point um, in doing it if the conditions aren't aren't right. But I think there is a still a very strong commitment to the two-state solution, um, a dismay really about, you know, how Trump has handled that. Um, so I think they will, you know, I think we'll see a, a change in more engagement of the Palestinian Authority, but I wouldn't expect, you know, them to launch it. And I don't think anyone really is asking in Europe or anywhere else, you know, to launch a, a new intensive sort of negotiation early on. Um, so they'll wait to see how that evolves. I think they are supportive of um, many aspects of the normalization between Israel and um, the uh, uh, and and the region, um, but there are probably some concerns about particulars, like the recent deal with Morocco, and um, you know the recognition of of Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara. So um, so I think there will be some issues there, um, but broadly speaking, you know normalization is something that successive administrations have been asking for. Uh, for quite some time. I know people always expect maybe a more even-handed approach from a democratic administration, but Biden did actually have a very good uh, personal relationship with Netanyahu when he was vice president, didn't he? Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, you know, he had a relationship <laughs> with Netanyahu okay. as his cordial. Um, I, I'm not sure, you know, if they had a good relationship in the sense that, um you know, that there was sort of satisfaction on by Biden about, you know, about how Netanyahu sort of behaved. Um, Maybe more of a, a personal rapport was probably, was that, is that a better way of putting it than a, than a, a meaningful <laughs> relationship? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Biden is that he, he really, more than President Obama, he believes in personal relationships and he believes in tending to those and to listening to other people you know, and that that is sort of the key to foreign policy. Obama, I think, you know, from an early stage, what, you know, was more into sort of the substance and the technical details and maybe a little less on the person relationship side. He did develop some close person relationships over time, but it took a while, even with Angela Merkel in Germany. So I think Biden sort of does believe um, in that. And he, you know, he is, he has a, a, a long track record of supporting Israel um, that I think is understood in Israel and will, you know, probably help because um, there was some misunderstanding about that in, in the case of President Obama. Um, but having said all of that, you know, I think he also knows that when they negotiated the JCPOA that Netanyahu was, you know, a, a, a key architect of trying to dismantle it um, and that there was a lot of uh, frustration um, at that. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll, we'll um, you know, we'll, we'll see them, I think, engage with each other. Um, but I think he won't be shy about bringing up areas of uh, issues of concern either. And who knows, maybe the Netanyahu's own time is 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 coming to an end. I think there may be another election coming there. But uh, you mentioned Angela Merkel there, uh, uh, Tom. That prompts another question. Of course, I mean Trump tore up the script entirely when it came to relations with uh, the US's allies in Europe. Do you think he did like permanent damage there? Like has he sown you know some mistrust that European leaders will um, find it difficult to get over? Or will things kind of reset to the way they used to be as soon as um, Biden is in the White House? 
I think it's a mixed bag. You know, I think on on the one hand, you know, his presidency and the fact that Republicans did not, you know, lose um, the the fact that there was not a overwhelming repudiation of of Trumpism in the election. You know, he lost decisively in the presidential election, but obviously they gained seats in the House and may still hold on to the Senate, that that does raise the prospect that he he or somebody like him could come back. And I think in Europe, you know, that's an issue of, of real concern, right? And so they would look at Biden and say, you know, we want to work on all of this. We, we believe in a lot of what you're saying, but how do we know it won't be reversed, you know, in four years time? And so I think there's more of an openness to President Macron's advice that Europe needs to be more autonomous and more capable of sort of standing on its own two feet. And in many ways, the Biden team will encourage that, you know, and I think they will welcome it. So I think it has changed. Um, But having said all of that, um, I think Biden will also be able to repair a lot of the damage um, that Trump wrought on the transatlantic relationship, particularly with Germany, but not just with Germany and that this episode has reminded people on both sides of the Atlantic how much they sort of need each other, you know, that, um, that, you know, to deal with all of these global and regional challenges. It's incredibly important, you know, that you have greater coordination and cooperation and, and that we need to, you know, not just focus on those areas where there's disagreement, but also on the whole array of issues where there's alignment but and agreement, but no cooperation to speak of over the last over the last four years. And finally, Tom, not a foreign policy question, but I'd be interested in your your take on this uh, more of a, a domestic issue, if you like. But um, I mean, for the last four years, I suppose Trump has had a unifying effect on the Democratic Party. They've all had a, a they've had a common goal, which was to to get him out of the White House. Um, now that they've won the presidential election didn't do so well maybe in, in, in the House and Senate elections, certainly in the House elections. The focus is kind of turning again to the, some of the divisions within the party and how how wide the gap is between the left and the right of the Democratic Party. Do you think Biden will manage to hold that party together? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. I don't think anyone knows for sure, but I think the fact that, um, you know, there's an argument that precisely because it's so close, and precisely because the election wasn't as good as as Democrats hoped, and um, that that will actually mute um, internal differences because they know that if they're at each other's throats, um, then they are less likely to win in two years' time in the midterms or in four years' time. Um, so I think you you will, and you already see some of this that you know there was a lot of. Of, of whiplash, I guess, after the election, there was a, a you know, congressional call of, of congressional Democrats where some frustrations were vented on that call and became quite public about whether or not, you know, progressives had tanked moderate Democrats in swing districts or whether or not the moderate Democrats just had not been, you know, uh, politically savvy enough on their campaign techniques, which was uh, Alexandria uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez's Critique. Um, so I think that that is definitely happening, but it may be a little bit suppressed um, because of the larger sort of challenge, which is governing and winning in a deeply divided country. And, you know, ultimately, um, the common ground, I think, between progressives and centrists 
is is fairly large. You know, on, on economic policy, Biden has moved in a progressive direction. I think the world has moved in a more, um, you know, progressive direction on, on, on economic policy, including international economic policy. And, um, and there is, you know, a fair amount of overlap, um, even on foreign policy issues in terms of what Biden wants to do on China and what, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders advocated during the primary campaign. Um, so, and then obviously on Supreme Court issues and everything else, you know, there, there's um, there's very little difference between them. So uh, I think it will be a plot line. It's particularly strong at the moment just because of the appointments. So you're seeing a lot of jockeying for positions. Um, but I think once that settles down, um, there may be a little less turbulence than one might expect because of that sort of political context. Now, of course, as we know, Tom, Joe Biden is a is a, a great friend of Ireland and indeed describes himself, um, self-identifies as Irish, if you like. Um, does that mean it's going to be sort of all plain sailing between the Irish government and, and the US uh, administration for the next four years? Or might there be some areas of difference that might emerge as well? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Chris. I mean, Biden, I think, is more uh, overtly Irish maybe than any previous Irish-American president, including John F. Kennedy. Uh, it means a lot to him. He talks about it all the time. Um, I think there will be a very close relationship. I think it's particularly important, obviously, on Brexit issues, but also more generally and with Ireland on the National Security Council. Um, so I think you, you really will see uh, you know, a, a really sort of close relationship between his administration and Ireland. The one issue I think that might... Um, be a little bit difficult is sort of on this international corporate tax question, uh, which obviously is of particular, you know, importance to Ireland and is a long-standing sort of issue with the EU, with the rest of the EU, and also um, in this latest sort of OECD process um, on trying to find an international agreement on tax. I would say um, that the Biden people, including in the Treasury Department and I think in the White House, are very concerned about the fact that major American companies basically don't pay tax, you know, anywhere, um, uh, particularly in, in the U.S. And, and they are probably going to be more focused on this issue um, than the Obama administration was. I think they will try to reinvigorate the OECD process, but they may also go bilateral with the EU. Um, and there's, you know, and, and there's obviously a European component to this with the digital services tax uh, you know that France is 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 pushing for, and um, that is also a bit contentious with the with the U.S. So I think we will see a much stronger engagement um, on that. That's not sort of focused on Ireland per se, um, but I think it is. Uh, you know, it will have a, an impact, and I think it's also important just for your listeners to to remember too that you know that when we talk about sort of the risks of inequality and 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 sort of a changing sort of economic climate, a larger role for, for government and particularly post-COVID, you know, it's, it, tax has to be a part of that and the taxation base has to be a part of that. So I think it's, you know, we're likely to see more negotiations on an international agreement um, on that issue in the coming years. Tom, that's great. Well, it's been great again to get your take on, on, on so many issues today. Thanks a lot for joining us. And, and hopefully, as we mentioned earlier, the next time we'll, we'll have an in-studio discussion. But thanks again for that. Great. Thanks, uh, Chris. It's been a great pleasure to be with you and uh, look forward to seeing you in person in 2021. 
But that's all for this week and indeed for this year. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Goodbye for now.